All right, so we've been on this topic for a little bit, and we've described it. I've made you kind of like go to the depths of what in the world apathy is. Um, and tonight we're going to call, uh, talk a little bit about the causes of apathy. Uh, this is like half of them, and then we're going to do some more uh, the next Sunday because you can't put them all in one. But uh, this, this reminds me kind of what uh, people sometimes experience. One of the most discouraging things is when you're not feeling well and you go to the doctor and he can tell you all the things that it's not. It's not this, and it's not this, and it's not this. And you want to say, okay, I see that it's not that. Now tell me, what is it? And they, they, they can't tell you. On the other hand, when they have a name for it, even if you can't pronounce it, and even if you can't explain to other people what it even is, when a doctor can at least tell you he knows what it is, it brings you a sense of at least understanding. At least he knows what to do to treat it. Uh, and, and tonight, we're going to be talking about that. What, what in the world can you call apathy exactly? So apathy, uh, uh, when it comes to our spiritual walk with God, is what we've been ta- talking about the last couple of weeks. We defined it, we've described it as um, an indifference that, affli- uh, that afflicts us. It takes over our spiritual lives. The fact that we care deeply about God, we've responded to Him and given our lives to Him, we seek a relationship with Him, makes it feel strange when we, feel, we find ourselves actually not even caring about nurturing that relationship. It's perplexing. Uh, I want a close walk with God, but I just can't make myself pursue it. Can you imagine that like Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, they had this appointment to walk with God every day. Imagine that you have this appointment where you can walk in the evening with God. You can actually walk with Him, see Him and walk with Him, and you choose not to show up. You just stand him up. You choose not to. He makes himself available to you, and you just don't care enough to show up. So this evening we're talking about what would cause a Christian, a person who claims to want to follow Jesus, a a person who claims I want to live a life pleasing to him, to suddenly kind of go, yeah, when it comes to having a walk with him. There's all sorts of possible reasons Scripture gives, but also that you can look around. We're going to look at three of them. Here's the first one. first one is doubt. Doubt, this lack of certainty about things. Every Christian goes through seasons of doubt. Every believer has certain spots in their lives where there's this kind of pit of uncertainty. Some uh, of us have a real big struggle with this, like, I'm just not sure God exists at all. That's a pretty big gap right there. That's a pretty big pit to have in your life. Some might say something like, I'm not sure that God came in the flesh in Jesus. You know, John makes it very clear. That's kind of like one of the big deals. But if you struggle with God coming in the flesh, being a man, you're like, I just don't know how all that works. He's 100% God and 100% man. And you demand to understand that before you will fully believe, well, you're going to have a struggle with doubt. How does the Holy Spirit live in the believer? And if that's a real struggle for you, well, then your walk is going to have a limp. 
It may be something that you simply don't have enough information about that you're really curious about. I know a lot of people that will say to me, I, I, I really need to know what exactly happens the moment you die. I'm not sure. There's several things in Scripture about that. I'm not sure I can answer that for you. And if you have to have that, I don't know what to tell you. If you, if, you, if you lack this enthusiasm for pursuing God because you have this one spot in your life where you're not certain, that's a difficulty. Doubt can make you weak in the knees. It can make you collapse, take the wind out of your sails. Your confidence is flagged. The author breaks this down into three things. This book I'm reading, I don't even know the guy's name. I can't pronounce it. But he says there's factual doubt. I historically have some questions about the Christian faith. Emotional doubt. I, I believe the Christian faith is right, but I just I can't get myself to my feelings to follow suit. And so I have some emotional doubt. And then there's volitional doubt. I believe it, I fully feel convicted by it, but the thing is I can't make myself actually do it. I have all these weird what ifs in my head. It makes sense, doesn't it, why doubt could be a blocker for your Christian life? Those areas where you're just not certain. Do you remember what the definition of faith is? Hebrews 11.1 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And if you, you suddenly lack a feeling that there's evidence for what you believe, it undermines your willingness to do anything by faith. It's a real struggle. And then in verse 6, five verses on, anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. And you don't believe, you're just, I don't know if there is a God, I'm kind of uncertain about that. And then I don't know that he's going to actually show up and, and fill my doubt, right, and my certainty. So because of that, you suddenly find yourself paralyzed and numb. Scripture will say this, doubt kind of zaps your energy and leads to paralysis and inaction. James says it this way, a person who believes, who prays, but does not believe, is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. He's a double-minded man. He can't make up his mind whether he believes or not. Doubt really debilitates a believer. There's religious studies that show that those who are church attenders but that they have doubts that are serious in their minds, it negatively impacts them. Their mental health is not as good. It shows up in depression, anxiety, paranoia, hostility, obsessive compulsive symptoms. It leads to decline in life satisfaction and self-esteem and optimism because while I'm going through the motions, I'm not sure I believe this. Doubt. Now we'll talk later on about what you do about this. But there are some obvious responses a church needs to make. We at Valley View need to be a church that welcomes people who are going through seasons of doubt. You don't have to have it all resolved, and you don't have to go with the party line. You can have serious struggles in your mind intellectually or in your will or even in your emotions about whether this is all real or not. Don't have to get all that resolved and you have to distance yourself from the church while you fix all that. It doesn't have to happen. We are going to preach the truth at this church, but if you are a person you're just not really sure about it, come anyway. Come anyway. 
And if you're a member, you've been a member all your life, but suddenly you're overwhelmed with doubt about certain things, it's not the time to then distance yourself from the community of God. That's not what you do in those moments. Valley View will embrace you. This is not something where you better be sure or get out the door. It's not like that. You're safe here. But second, let me say this, that I think, especially for junior high and high school, our classes need to ramp up their substantive content. Classes of devotional-like sermonettes and impromptu feel-good thoughts about this verse are not going to hold people over when the doubt comes thrown at them when they go to school. They need substance. They need content. We already know that when they leave these doors, they will be inundated with doubting people and positions that will compromise what they've heard here. If we already know that, we better equip them to be able to think through some of these things. Now, I saw this post on Facebook the other day, and I decided I need to put it on here. I, I think, notice what Paul Washer here says. And I love this. Your children will go to public school and they'll be trained for somewhere around 15,000 hours in ungodly secular thought. And then they'll go to Sunday school and they'll color a picture of Noah's Ark and you think that's going to stand against the lies they're being told. They come to our Bible classes and they're given this popcorn treatment of Scripture, casual Teacher hasn't studied it out. Teacher doesn't give them anything of substance. Let's just get through our time. If Bible class is just making up our time and getting through our time, be very careful because they'll go out the door and they will be inundated with questions that they won't be prepared to answer and they won't be equipped by us to answer them. So in a world where doubt is raised everywhere, is posed everywhere, we must prepare our young people to handle the doubt. And we have two 35-minute sessions to do it in. And a sermon. And yet there's one other thing I want to say about this. It comes from my favorite verse, right? You can, be a, you, you can be a vibrant believer who just simply struggles with certain things you don't know because if your faith depends on knowing everything, your faith will never be formed. There is an element of mystery that exists in the Christian faith. There are certain things you'll never grasp. There's this verse, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Did you know God has reserved some secret things in his back pocket? God has told us, I haven't told you everything. I think the reason he does is because in our human minds, we couldn't grasp it anyway. But he's told us that God is sovereign, but we have free will, and we've struggled for centuries trying to figure out how those two things fit together. <clears throat> and if you have to have a satisfactory, perfect answer for that before you believe you will never have belief. So allow for a little doubt. Allow for a little mystery because the Christian life is going to be that way. 
So doubt. Doubt is one of the big reasons people find themselves unmotivated to actually pursue a walk with God because they just, I can't go if I'm not certain, really. I can't do this if I'm not sure of what it does. A, a second one <clears throat> the author would list is grief. It's, it's, it's a strange thing, at least it sounds like that. Any given moment, there are people in our assembly who are struggling with loss of some kind. We think the biggies, right? We pray for those who lose their loved ones, and that is a big loss. And those of you who've studied loss at all know that you go through this series of responses to that loss. But that's not the only losses there are. Freedom of mobility. Some people are not as mobile as they used to be, and they're lamenting that. A fear of the future, a dread of the unknown, a, a sense where we're not safe, and every time there's a school shooting or something out in our culture, we feel this sense of uh, what we've always perceived as our safety is threatened, and we go through grief. Anxiety is a form of grief. The pandemic we recently went through brought on symptoms of grief that very few people consider to be grief, but consider this, the world for a time has changed big time, hasn't it? And you're going through that change. Normalcy was lost for a time. Economic toll that you were uncertain about is there. The gas prices, where's it going? The stuff in our culture right now, where's all this war stuff headed? The pandemic, all that stuff, the loss of connection, all of this brings on grief. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. As you go through all that in every form of grief, you lose interest in some of the things that are very important to you. It's a weird thing. If you've ever watched someone go through grief, some of the normal things that used to matter so much suddenly don't seem to matter. It's a suspension of what you think is important. Here's how C.S. Lewis described it. His wife that he waited all his life to find, and she dies, here's what he says. No one ever told me about the laziness of grief. I hope this makes sense to you. If you've ever seen anybody go through loss, you know this is true. Except at my job, where the machine seems to run as much as usual, I loathe the slightest effort. Not only writing, but even reading a letter is too much. Even shaving. Have you ever seen anybody go through grief? The daily stuff of life becomes too much they would have never let their lawn go away like that they would have never let themselves go like that but in the midst of grief he says even shaving what does it matter now whether my cheek is rough or smooth they say an unhappy man wants distraction something to take him out of himself but only as a dog tired man wants an extra blanket on a cold night he'd rather lie there shivering than get up and find one that's how he describes grief. And apathy, apathy is a sign that grief hasn't run its course yet. So grief can suspend a person between two worlds, right? And causes him to suddenly disengage from everything that used to be important. And sometimes that grief is because God has been disappointing to you. You've lost a job, and it's not how God would ever, you would have ever thought God would have acted. Or you move to a different place, and suddenly you're uprooted from your normal church, and you don't know how to get engaged. All these losses start causing you numbness. 
I really think two Bible characters exhibit this. If you remember after his denials, Peter had a hard time coming back. And even after the resurrection of Jesus, he still goes back to fishing. It's like he, he's disengaged. And what drove him for the last three years suddenly he can't engage in anymore but Jesus doesn't give up on him he keeps coming back to him and says feed my sheep feed my sheep. you got work to do I'm, I want to give you a job to do and that's exactly what God does with Elijah he wins on Mount Carmel and you'd think he's invincible now right but then there's a threat that comes against him and he's like nothing's really changed everything goes on as it has before and he goes into a cave and says God now I'm going to lay down and die and God gives him a job to do The Psalms are full of this kind of a struggle. Something bad's happened. Something's shaken me, and I'm grieving through this. By the end of the Psalm, they're back to their faith, but you've got to go through this period of just being overwhelmed. And I think that happens with a lot of people. And not just for obvious reasons. Grief. And there's a third one. You've got doubt. You've got grief, and you've got triviality. In our world, this is a big deal. I'm going to sing you a little bit of a line of an obnoxious song from an obnoxious, obnoxious movie. You ready? Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. Everything is awesome when you're living out a dream. Right? Everything's awesome. And in this song, the Lego movie, no one should ever watch it because that will suddenly be an earworm for you and you'll be weeks getting rid of it. But in this song, he says, turn signals, awesome. Parking between the lines, awesome. Smiling back at me, awesome. Drinking overpriced coffee, awesome. He is so blind to some of this stuff is no big deal, but everything's awesome. Everything's awesome. Now, what difference does that make? If you're going to watch 24-hour news networks like some people do, if they're going to keep you watching, they need to blow every story completely out of proportion and make it something that you need to tune into. Every silly little thing. Sensationalize it so that you'll stay tuned because otherwise you'll go on a commercial. So every little dip in unemployment has to be radically blown up and you blame the president and you blame the Congress and the world's coming down and, you know, the, it's just terrible. This weather front's coming in. It's going to change everything and your whole week is ruined. Ah, everything is awesome. See, that's what it's like. And you lose touch from what's really significant in life. We can't discern the difference between something that is eh and something that is profound. We don't know the difference because it's all sold the same way. And suddenly our faculties for discerning what's important are so dulled that nothing is really remarkable. You watch debates today and they don't say anything. No one says anything. Because no one will listen to substance. You've got to give me a good soundbite, a good cutting remark on my opponent, and that's what gets the one-liner, right, in the news. There's nothing of content. Ellen DeGeneres makes fun of this, and here's what she says. Here's a newscaster. There were no survivors in that train accident. Oh, and next, the candy bar that helps you lose weight. 
Oh, still to come, there's an asteroid hurtling toward Earth. But first, where's the cheesiest pizza in town? Seriously, you're going to put all that together? Okay, and you're still asking, what's that got to do with anything? If everything is awesome, what do you focus on? What do you care about? Everything and nothing. Everything and nothing. Let me quote another animated movie, right? The Incredibles, the main bad guy. If everyone is super, what's the rest of the line? If everybody's super, nobody is. If everybody's super, is everything big, everything important, nothing is. And we, we just, we, well, Neil Postman said, we amuse ourselves to indifference even to meaningless stuff. So we've got all this stuff at our fingertips. I have a preacher friend now who, he and I were taking a class at Harding called uh, Counseling Addictions. And we had to work on one of our addictions. We even had to make it up if we had to, right? Well, it didn't take us, either one of us, very long. But his addiction, let me talk about his because I'd rather talk about his than mine. Here's his addiction. He likes chasing meaningless trivia on Facebook as a distract on, on, on online as a, a distraction. He just loves these news feeds with totally meaningless facts. And he, he said, I will go for hours just chasing down stupid, meaningless facts. Well, that's not harmful. There's nothing bad about that. He's not going into pornography or anything. It's just, he said, I discovered I'm wasting a lot of time. So we cannot find time for the Word of God, but those cat videos are great! Friends tell us, you just got to check this out, and you watch it, and you spend 20 minutes watching it, and it's just, and I'm, I'm not, where's Matt? I'm not talking about the squirrel video. Squirrel video is legitimately amazing. But... Sometimes uh, it's easy to lose our grip on what's important. Do you know what the gospel means? The word gospel? Really good news. I mean, legitimately awesome news. But when you pit it with a cat video, and everything is awesome, everything is cool when you're... We don't know what good news is. Seriously. You say that's overreaction to our culture, is it? I don't think people know what's amazing. They don't know what good news really is. Because the gospel is, is not only about changing our past and lost to sin, but in empowering your present to be completely different and securing your future, all that. But it comes with a lifestyle reorientation. It changes everything. That's what awesome means. It changes everything. I love movies. Movies are great. But very few movies change everything. Very few. Very few pizzas I've eaten have reoriented my life to reality. No, not everything is awesome. But there are some things that are. Can we keep that priority? Can, can, we, can we rearrange our lives to make the awesome central? That's what we have to do. But in our world, it's very hard because in our world, everything is awesome. Every, 
So how do you demonstrate that priority in your own life? Can you prove to your friends that the gospel is so awesome it rearranges your life? Or is it in there with everything else? The song we sing, by the way, in order to do this, it takes a lot of discipline because you're going to have, and in order to discipline, you've got to discern. It takes both of them. I've got to discern that while that's, yes, that's a cute cat video, there's something more important and truly awesome I need to tap into right now. So I'm discerning that that should fit way down here at the bottom. And the gospel should be at the top. And once I discern, I've got to have the discipline to actually live that way. And so I sing the song, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. That other stuff kind of falls down below that. But at the top, the kingdom. The, the, the kingdom. Or the parable of the soils where it comes up and I'm so excited, but then, but then the thorns choke it. You remember what the thorns are? The things of this life, the cat videos, and everything is on. All that stuff can actually choke what's truly awesome. If you were to ask me, I would think this is one of the top reasons why people lose their hot pursuit of God because everything else comes in front. And none of it compares. None of it. But we've lost our ability to judge that. None of us is immune to any of these common experiences. And for you, maybe no, none of these three impact you at all. My guess is there's going to be seasons where all three of them impact you a little bit. But maybe right now you're looking at this, that's not me, and that's okay. We'll talk about the others the next time we're together on this. But the key, again, is to pay attention. Understand the consequences of how your experiences turn us. And if everything else is what you're actually giving your time to, everything else you devote time to, and you make sure you do every day, but you can't seem to work in the truly awesome into your schedule, it's telling me that triviality has bubbled to the top and the truly awesome has kind of come down underneath that. And that's a weird thing to think about, but it's true. We are not at the mercy of our experience. Every experience that we have has a consequence for us. We have to choose to be intentional how we respond to what truly matters and is of God and concerns holy things. Sometimes, y'all, I'll be honest with you, sometimes it feels like life lives us. A schedule gets formed and you just plug yourself into it and you go autopilot through it and you don't even think about it. But the interesting thing about our culture and COVID is this. We, as an entire race of people in the United States, had an actual forced stop with COVID, didn't we? And we could reflect, is that pace, is, is that pattern that we set up for ourselves the best one? It's all stopped, it's frozen, we have a chance to reflect and when we start again, we can do it on purpose. We can do it intentionally, and we can choose what patterns. And I'm saying this to my son as he moves to North Carolina here in a couple weeks. Noah, I want to tell you this. I've discovered this in my own life. What you do in your time, with your daily time, in the first six months of your move is going to become a pattern that it's going to be hard to break. Choose 
carefully what you do with that, 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 that schedule of your life for the first six months in a new place. You've got a chance to do it all over and craft for yourselves devotional time and prayer time. You can do that now in a way that you'll never be able to do it again. Pay attention. Live on purpose. Be intentional. Discern. Discipline yourself. Create a response that is on purpose and reflects your true values. Not a pace that everybody tells you you need to run and you fit yourself in as life lives you. It's a rare gift and we had it. And I wonder now as we get back to Everybody fought to get back to normal, and I just wanted to yell, get back to better than normal. Look at it again. See if those decisions you made coming out of that were the right ones. You can always choose again, but listen, it's going to be hard to do that. Those are the three things, the first three things we want to talk about. These things are often the culprit behind our sudden indifference to the things of God, the holy things that the people of God value, but it doesn't sometimes look like it. If there's anyone this evening needing to respond to a message like this or even responding to the gospel that has nothing to do with what Walter talked about tonight, we are here, we are available, we are willing to receive you and whatever you need as we stand and as we sing.